Welcome to Purpose and Power, the show where heart-centered executives and leaders share their journey on becoming a more empathetic leader and discuss some of their greatest learnings and accomplishments along that journey. Here's your host, Lupe Leon. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you to Robert Wicks. Robert is the Vice President of Philanthropy at Gladstone and the Chief Executive Officer of the Gladstone Foundation. Prior to joining Gladstone, he was the Director of West Coast Advancement at Dartmouth College, based in the Bay Area. From 2006 to 2014, he worked in a series of frontline fundraising roles for Stanford's Office of Development and the Graduate School of Business, specializing in the venture, capital, and entrepreneurial communities. Robert is a board member for YCOR and has served as an advisor to the social entrepreneurs at the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford, and Care Message. Robert has a BA in English from Binghamton University, was a PhD candidate in the English Department University of California at Berkeley, where he also taught. My conversation with Robert was so rich and full of wonderful ideas and advice that it turned out to be too long for a single episode. So we have divided it into two episodes. This episode is the first half of the interview. For the listeners, Robert, what would you say design thinking? How would you summarize design thinking? So design thinking is a maybe the simple simplest way to explain it is it's just a way of looking at a problem or an opportunity. It's a process for generating new ideas, trying them, and testing them. There's a bunch of formal language around it, but basically the simplest way to describe the process is it starts with empathy. It starts by, in a non-judgmental way, just thinking, what does this person need? It's people-centered. Right. What are, what are their needs? And from there, it, it really then, you know, quickly you start to find the problem or define what you're going to work on. As soon as you know the needs and you've defined what you're going to work on, you start to ideate. So that's you just start to generate as many ideas as you possibly can with A brainstorming. The, brainstorming is what they used to call it, but it is there are lots of exercises that people who are practicing design thinking process have adopted to generate as many ideas as possible in a group setting without one person dominating or judging or, right? So that's your brainstorming. Sure, I think that's a perfect way to think of it. Then you prototype, you build something as fast as you can with the cheapest and easiest materials you have at hand. That's cardboard, duct tape, whatever it is. If you're working on a product, don't worry about the materials, just start to shape the thing. And the whole point is just to get to a prototype as fast as possible. Then you test it. Then you see how does it work? What would I do differently if I stand it up on, if it's an object, let's say, if I stand it up on the table and it's this high and this wide, does it fall over? Does it start to feel good in my hand? What is it? So mm -hmm. design thinking is 
a natural fit for product design. Yes. Also works for process design. And I find that it's really become, because I've sort of been thinking in this way for 25 years or so, it's how I approach everything, basically. Yeah, Um, well, it's part of what I use in thinking about organization design. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right? Uh, And yeah, you're right. When we spoke before, you reminded me that this is not something new. It's been around for a long time, yeah. Yeah. But it's now just taking just uh, taking a little bit more more time. pervasive. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my interest is in how this design thinking methodology can be applied to the leadership role, the executive leadership role. Yeah. Yeah. So think about it. If you just think about what happened to us over the last couple of years or last 20 months, all of us had the same problem simultaneously, which is how do we redesign our workflow and all of the processes associated with that in a way that's going to work, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody had the answer really. So Mm -hmm. we tried a lot of different things. You know, we came up with all trying. (laughs) We're we're still trying. We're testing now, but Mm -hmm. there has to be this feedback loop. So the design thinking process always returns back to the end user to the single person whose problem you're trying to solve. So when you get to a a version of the process or the product or whatever it is, and you think it's you're pretty happy with it, the first thing you need to ask is put it in someone's hand and say, you know, how does it feel? Or if you're designing a process, you ask, how are we doing? So for me as a manager, I found myself constantly looking at new ways to do the work that we do and constantly asking, how are we doing? Is this feeling right to you guys? Is this working for you guys? Like, what are we feeling? And so I think it's a natural fit for a certain kind of culture and a certain kind of leadership style. And when Uh, you say a certain kind of culture or leadership style, can you give me a little bit more information about what does that mean for you? That, yeah. that style or that. I mean, culture. honestly, not not all cultures are people centered, right? Mm-hmm. You might say that all should be, but the, but it's not right. But the, for the cultures where that are non hierarchical, I would say that where they want to hear debate and disagreement, and where how people are feeling about things matter. Design thinking is a natural fit for leaders who don't always have to have the right answer, but want to hear from as many points of view as possible and want to really commit to going into a situation or a problem or challenge or whatever it is with an open mind. Design thinking is great, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to commit though to the whole process. At some point you have to decide it doesn't remain open-ended the whole time. At some point, you have to make a series of decisions. What are we going to work on? What's the scope of it? You know, you have to define the problem or define the opportunity early on. So you know what you're trying to build, but then you just, you ideate around that and then you build a whole bunch of different versions of it. So for us, for instance, just to think of a specific, we thought, you know, what does our work week look like 
when we don't all show up at the office at the same time, have lunch at the same time and go home at the same time. Mm-hmm. So what process do we need to design for our, our workflow if we know that we are a distributed team and there is no chance of not being a distributed team, you know? So like, mm-hmm. we, we didn't know how long it was going to go on, but then at some point we knew okay, it's going to be a while and we're not going to see each other. We're not going to be in the same room and we might not be in the same time zone and we might, might not be in the same zip code. And right. So mm-hmm. starting to think about how the things that we tried feel for everybody on the team was, is really important, was important. And so throughout well, the, and not only uh, is it there, the complication of being geographically remotely distributed, right? Right. But then there are the complications of the different experiences and challenges that the different team members may be going through or we're going through with the uh, all of a sudden the kids at home or sure. you know, a sundry of things, right? Sure. And so part of it is you really have to commit to everybody being open and comfortable with one another and comfortable with expressing themselves in a way where they know that they're not going to be judged for it uh, or that there aren't going to be consequences. If they say something that somebody disagrees with, you want to really get at people's feedback and impressions and feelings, right? So Mm -hmm. we early on as a team started asking ourselves, how are we feeling about this? Like not how are we feeling about the pandemic? Because everyone felt the same way. It's are we feeling about how are we doing on the, you know, because we're an emission-driven organization. How are we feeling about our chances to continue to make progress and to do the things that we need to do? And one person on our team almost right away said, I hate to say this, but I think it's so much better. I think that I'm so much more productive. And I have to admit that when I had to come into the office, I was just pretending to be productive sometimes because I am not productive productive from nine o'clock till five o'clock. Like some people, my window of productivity happens in the evening. Interesting. Other people said some version of the same thing that, yeah, I find that I'm actually really productive at six o'clock in the morning. So that was actionable insight. I realized as a manager, okay, we've got to design a process that has chronological flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, so we are not, we can't assume that we're going to be synchronized to our watches anymore. So that made me start thinking of different ways to stay in sync with one another, even when somebody might be sleeping while the other person's working. And so, you know, the set of meetings that we had on the calendar before the pandemic, when I looked at them after the pandemic, I thought none of these matter anymore. So we did what a lot of designers do. We went back to the drawing board. We scrapped all of them. And I said, instead of trying to fix the meetings we have, let's get rid of them all and let's put the ones we need or want on the calendar one at a time. So what's the first meeting that in the week that we need? And we came up with this idea that we do need to huddle on Mondays and get our start to collect our thoughts. And so that Monday huddle, we call the muddle. 
because <laughs> our, our thoughts are, yeah, our thoughts are not quite clear and we need to get together and start to collect our thoughts and then ask each other, where can we be helpful? What's top of mind for you and where can we be helpful? And then we realized that through the middle of the week, there were no meetings that really felt essential, just some ad hoc ones. But mostly it was just keep each other on speed dial. Let's pick up the phone. Let's find ways to communicate with one another that work for each of us. And then on Fridays, we need another huddle so that we can go into the week, into the weekend and leave some stuff behind. And when we call that the fruddle, that's the oh, Friday. Huddle. I love it. And the pattern that we adopted is Monday is for calibration and Friday is for celebration. So oh, now our meetings are short. On Monday, we say, what's top of mind for you and where do you need help? And then on Fridays, we ask, what do you want to celebrate? And I learned things about my teammates in those Friday afternoon celebrations, the fruddles, that I did not know and probably wouldn't have been able to learn if I was in the office with them day out for weeks and months on end. Right? You know, just intuitively, we did the same thing, me and my team, where mm -hmm. Monday was, okay, here's what we're going to work on. Here are some of the areas that I might need support on, et cetera, et cetera, right? Just mm -hmm. kind of get situated. But our Wednesday was a check-in, and we quickly found that after a bit, that Wednesday, to your point, really wasn't necessary. There wasn't mm -hmm. a lot of value of it. Yeah. And then Friday, yeah, it was just, let's recognize, I called it, let's recognize what got done during the week. To yeah. feel that there's been progress or there, if there's challenges, let's just vet them out, right? Yep. And what a difference that made. Mm -hmm. It turned to a just a meeting of not just celebrating what we had done, but recognizing each other. Yeah. Yeah. So there's and, another... Go ahead. And it really helped build that glue between the team, I'm sure you know, going through the emotions of a worldwide pandemic also contributed to it. But really having that time to acknowledge, express gratitude, and celebrate made such a huge impact for us. Another thing, though, related to that, that, that I think a lot about is that I remember hearing, you know, people who work on their feet a lot, what they'll tell you is you got to have more than one pair of shoes because even <laughs> if you have the most comfortable shoes in the world, if you wear them every day, it makes your feet hurt more. Yeah. So a trick for people that, that are on their feet a lot is to have two or three different pairs that they can switch in and out of. Mm -hmm. And I think of that as, as a manager that this a Monday meeting and a Friday meeting is really comfortable for us and led to us getting to know each other better and be more productive and all of that. At some point along the way, we needed to put on a different pair of shoes and try something else just so we can go back to the first way of doing things, if, but just to have to avoid monotony uh, mm. and boredom, I would say. And stress comes from if you think of stress in sort of physical terms, like if you have a paper clip and you just keep bending it in the same way, little by little, it gets, it, you know, it warms up. And then it weakens and it snaps, but it can just be the smallest emotion. So any repetitive motion done monotonously over time is going to lead to stress and is going to lead to a breakdown of some kind. So and oh, that can brilliant. Even be, You're right. You know, right. So I am mindful as we're, as we are, as we land on things that are working, 
to change a little bit before we realize we need to. Right? So what did you change from the muddle to the fruddle? Yeah. So as one of the things we did, and we do this every year, but we did it more mindfully this year than in years past, is to really step back and say, let's not, let's break this pattern. And this week, we're just going to each of us think about our sweet spot, right? Think mm. about the things that you really love to do, the things that bring you energy in your work. And here, what's interesting about that is, so in basketball is where my familiarity with the term sweet, sweet spot comes from. And what's interesting is there's a spot on the floor where when you shoot from there, the ball goes in more often than not. And you would think that you decide where that spot is. But what's really interesting is actually your teammates. They recognize that when you're standing in a certain spot, if they, mm. if they pass it to you, you more often than not make it. And there becomes this sort of sense of responsibility. If you're standing on your sweet spot and somebody gets you the ball, you're expected to shoot it, right? Yes. <laughs> so I love the idea that sweet spot is sort of determined through sort of collective wisdom. <laughs> like the, your te teammates tell you, these are the things that you're really good at. Keep doing them. And then that positive feedback matches up with the things that you like to do. And, you know, so when you're in your sweet spot, you know it and other people know it. So we wanted to really talk, have a conversation about that and have a conversation about what our individual pain points were. So we had to break the pattern of we're going to meet on Monday, we're going to meet on Friday and just say, let's take some time and each of us kind of meditate on our sweet spot. And then let's ask ourselves, do we need a different set of meeting. And what it revealed is that there were some people on the team that wanted more mentoring, you know, wanted more access, the kind of coaching you can get when you're in person. More one-on-one right? -on -one time. More one-on-one -on -one time, exactly. And so all of a sudden we put more one-on-ones on the calendar. And my rule with one-on-ones for the people that report to me is, it's your time. You tell me how I can be helpful and you tell me how much of it you need. We don't schedule an hour because you're supposed to do. I'll block as much time as it takes until you don't need anything from me anymore. Right? So people realize they have a responsibility to prepare for the one-on-one -on -one and that they can do with whatever they want with that time. It's their meeting, not yours. It's their meeting. It's not their yours. agenda, right. not yours. At the same time, I thought that it was really clear just watching how th things were beginning to impact us that we needed to have a conversation about mental hygiene and just taking care of ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. So I asked if I were in the office, often I would take a one-on-one -on -one as a sort of walk and talk. Let's leave the office and let's walk over to a cafe and let's talk along the way uh, just to change things up. Well, in zoom world, a lot of us stopped doing that and we would just sit at our kitchen table or on a couch somewhere and and talk all day yeah and the one-on-ones there was no difference between the <laughs> we we were in the exact same posture for our one-on-ones and i realized that i needed to change that for myself so now i asked my team for permission to can i put some headphones on and take a walk around my neighborhood during our one-on-ones or do you need me seated and looking at a spreadsheet you tell oh, me but if you don't perfect. need to look at something more often than not i'm going to be out and about somewhere 
And you doing that actually gave them the same idea to do that for themselves and yeah. the permission. Yeah. Yeah. When I was, so I worked at Stanford for a long time. And one of the things people always want to know is like, what's the secret sauce at Stanford? How come they're so successful? This is within the fundraising enterprise. They uh -huh. are, they and are, and they are amazing. They are amazing year after year after year yeah. after year. I, I I was part of foundation at a junior college and we modeled yeah. after you. Yeah. Um, well, because it was just so that, amazing. Some things you just can't do unless you have the resources and the commitment and mm -hmm. the planning that Stanford mm -hmm. does. But, mm -hmm. but one of the things that they do really well is encourage people to have work-life balance. And you hear that all the time, but the way they encourage it is at lunchtime, you see your colleagues walking out of the building with yoga mats under their arms or you see them walk going on walks together, you don't see anybody eating their lunch at their desk. Ah. And then at five o'clock, you don't see anybody in the office. It's not part of their value system to try to outwork the person in the cube next to you and to stay later than it's humanly possible. It's part of their value system to get up and go home and be a good dad or a good mom or to, right? And what we would say there is then is that, you know, you want, a job that you can wrap around your life instead of a life that you have to wrap around your job. And they do that really, really well. And if you, and so that's something that I took with me after I left. And I'm always thinking of ways in which to keep myself energized and refreshed <laughs> and yes. excited about the next meeting I'm going to have. And also, you know, that my, my team feels the same way. When you're in the office and you walk by and you see somebody's shoulders sloped, it's kind of obvious right? Yes. In Zoom, it can be less obvious. But if you start paying attention to body language, and you know, whether they are looking at their phone, while they're supposed to be, you know, what I mean, you can see the signs of boredom and fatigue, even on Zoom, if you if you look not all that closely, even. Yeah, you can, you can see the expressions of people's face, yeah. you can see maybe the hand movement, maybe not as well, right? Yeah. But you can, there is a way that you can actually see some of that. Now, part of that is the challenge of having people go on to a Zoom call with their camera on. We, and I haven't, it hasn't occurred to me that people don't have their camera on. I have been on calls where the cameras go off sometimes, but I think, what's the point of this exactly, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Almost all the calls, and I'm on, like everybody, I'm on more or less perpetual Zoom calls. Almost all of them are, everyone has the camera on. I realized that it's my responsibility to send to the speaker some nonverbal cues that makes it obvious that I'm paying attention mm. and I am following the conversation and not just sitting there waiting for it to be over. You know what I mean? You know, that's a thought that I had not had before, which I really like the idea that showing up to these calls, mm -hmm. it's not just about just sitting there, but really being intentional, mm -hmm. but intentional that I am going to do my best to send the nonverbal cues that I can, even yeah. though we're in this video environment, as yeah. well as be mindful and intentional about paying attention to my team. It, it kind of really goes back to that. Because, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was going to say it really matters because I don't know if you've ever had the experience of teaching in front of a group of people. Yes. 
Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't see some heads nodding, and if you don't see some people picking up a pencil to write down what you said, or if you see them flipping through their notebook, you know, and obviously or sliding them, back in their chair, uh, it catches up to you really fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the, as the as so I used to teach and and I had a friend of mine come and observe me do some peer coaching. Right. And I thought that the whole point was for him afterwards to say, man, you're amazing. Right? <laughs> but after all, it was a friend. <laughs> right. So we afterwards we go out for lunch and he said, so do you want feedback? And I said, yeah, please. And he said, you were really bad. Oh, and what he said stuck with me. He said, first of all, you're sitting on top of the desk. This was at Berkeley on a big wooden desk and you got all these students. And so I was comfortable and I would just sit up there with my legs crossed on the desk and talk. And I said, yeah, no, I'm really comfortable up there. He said, but you're in the same position the whole time. So he challenged me mm -hmm. that what he said is get up, try this, get up, close the distance between you and the class. So walk closer to them. Turn Creates your more back. intimacy. Yep. Turn your back on them sometimes. Walk over to the window and look out the window for a second. Go to the board and start to write something before you know what you're going to write. Just create movement and surprise and a variety and see how that works. And lo and behold, it was a huge difference. The, the class was way more attentive when I was a moving object. <laughs> they right. had to keep up with you. <laughs> yeah. And so I've thought about that on these Zoom calls about, you know, how to build surprises into our work, into these conversations we're having, how to get a person to raise their hand or jump into a conversation, how to be less predictable so that we're not all just waiting for things to, and get on to the next meeting. Oh, and I love that. A lot of people have done this, but one of the things that I, somebody suggested that I try to, a practice I try to stick to is just building five minutes in at the end. I want to end these calls before they're over. <laughs> I want ah. five minutes to be able to plan for the next one. So I had asked, I'm, I have somebody who manages my calendar. I said, could you, could you not put any meetings back to back? I can't mm -hmm. have meeting, two meetings right up against each other. And because when we were in the office, that wouldn't really happen very often. You know, right. you go into a conference room and you have a meeting and then you get up and you walk out with the people who were in that meeting and you go back to your desk and you're there for a bit. You might have another meeting soon, but you weren't in this relentless string of meetings in the mm -hmm. same way that we have been recently. But mm -hmm. You would at least build some travel time, especially if you were in a larger yeah. campus, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brilliant. And you know, the whole idea of creating movement, but it's intentional. It's not, oh, just stand there swaying, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, that's movement, but that's not the kind of movement that you want when you're presenting or you're teaching. That's just going to make somebody really seasick. <laughs> Yeah, and no, the same thing with design thinking, I'm just going to tie this back to that, is the notion of intentionality. Yeah, I think I thought you were going somewhere else with that, because I think part of it is the dialogue that you're having with someone else. The, the, it is the conversation between you and them or among you 
all. And so you're constantly getting feedback and then adjusting and getting more feedback and adjusting. And so as a teacher, I think you're a natural design thinker because you try something. And if it doesn't seem like the class is getting it, you try something else. And, and of course you're testing, you know, how are we doing? So. Mm -hmm. And you're taking the cues, but you know, one of the things is you kind of move up the ladder, if you will, into larger le leadership, people leadership roles. I find that it is harder and harder to get that candid feedback. And I get it. It really depends on how it mm. is that you're approaching being a leader. Mm. But I think many still today, either sometimes we end up hearing what the team or others think we want to hear. But how do you build yeah. the possibility or encouragement of others to truly give you candid feedback so yeah. that you can get better. Yeah, that, you make a really good point because I'm mindful that I see this when the president of our organization walks into a room, the conversation changes. Yeah, uh, for sure. In my case, it would be hard to say whether that happens, whether my team is afraid uh, to be honest with their feedback. I suspect not because their feedback is not entirely positive. Right? <laughs> they, it's candid. It's direct. Right, it's huh? candid. They, they are not afraid to say that's not, that doesn't seem like a very good idea. Um, right. So, but I think that you, the way you get honest feedback is to clearly want it. Right. Mm. And to be authentic. I always say that, you know, people can detect one part per million of lack of authenticity. So if a team here is give me your feedback and the person really means, tell me what I want to hear. Kind of like you and your friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The team is going to know that. So, you know, I think the way I encourage honest feedback is to authentically want it and to be thankful when I get it. And when I've heard something that's been hard for me to hear, because it reveals either a shortcoming that, that I wish I didn't have or a lack of, let's say, preparation or thought, or if it's a mistake that I say, you know, I should have known better. I'm still thankful that somebody pointed it out so that I won't make that mistake again, hopefully, right? Or I'll be better prepared next time or whatever it is. So I think if you invite feedback and clearly appreciate it, it's just not that hard to get more of it. I hope that's true. No, I agree with you. It really truly is about really looking at feedback, as you said, as a gift, or at least this, I'm in mm -hmm. agreement with you mm -hmm. on it. Mm -hmm. That's right. And it is about how it is that we react and or respond when we do receive feedback that is difficult because it's highlighting a blind spot or a part of us that we don't like. Do we just blow it off? Do we ignore it totally? Or do we at least with curiosity ask, well, can you explain that more, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think that modeling that just helps the team feel more and more comfortable and confident and psychologically safe to give you more and more feedback. Please join us for part two of the interview with Robert on the next episode of Purpose in Power.
Thank you for listening to Purpose in Power with Lupe Leon. Be sure to check the show notes for contact information about today's guest. Connect with Lupe on LinkedIn and join an executive journey group on LinkedIn. You can also contact Lupe via her webpage at anexecutivejourney.com. <laughs>